0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Ellie. I'm a member here at Redemption. Our reading today is in Jonah, chapter four, um, one through eleven, which is the whole chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God." and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, And he asked that he might die and said, is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word for us today.
1: Let's pray together. Father, this has been an interesting book, and we've now come to the end of it, and it gets even more interesting. (laughs) And God, we pray that as we really consider and reflect on on the way this book is meant to end, basically by just putting a rock in our stomach to see the real extent of Jonah's anger, wow, and and the depths of his pride and his hypocrisy, God, would we come away from this, yes, convinced of our anger, our, our pride, our hypocrisy, God, but more than that, would you give us the eyes to see your incredible mercy? In this book but because God if if like Jonah we miss that we will be angry and proud and bitter people and yet if if we simply repent (laughs) like everyone else in this book you will relent you'll give us grace and mercy that restores and, and redeems us and so God we pray to that end today would you give us the eyes to see what we need to repent of today in our own hearts. And would you give us soft hearts that are eager to respond to your word with that same repentance? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I am not really into social media, to be honest. And uh, so memes are not really my thing. Uh, However, uh, there is one meme that I've seen that's really stuck with me over the years And it happens to be the perfect introduction to this sermon. And so I am going to share a meme with us this morning. Uh, If you don't know what a meme is, first, I'd really love to meet you. I think we'd get along very well. Um, But uh, for the purposes of today, I'll just explain that a meme is a joke in the form of a picture with some text on the top of it. Uh, and people uh, like to make these memes uh, and then pass them around the internet for a good laugh. It's the idea. And, and a lot of memes, like a lot of memes, this one tends to show up in very different forms. For instance, the picture might be different, but the, the text is, is always the same. But here is one of the memes. It's of Tom Brady after he just won a Super Bowl. And, and, the, and the text says, you mad, bro? You mad? This meme... Uh, usually uh, has a person like Tom Brady here that's doing really great. It's doing just fine. Just won a Super Bowl. And people typically like to share this meme when someone that they know on the internet is clearly very upset about something for a very personal or self-centered reason even. And, and, and it's really meant to be pretty sarcastic. What it really means is uh, not, are you mad? That's, it's, that's not what it means. What it means is it's pretty hard to miss that you're mad. Uh, but here, let me ask you if you are, right, with a smile on my face, to try and expose the self-centeredness of your anger, right? For example, you might share this meme after uh, the, 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 they won a Super Bowl, Tom Brady wins another Super Bowl, and, and his friends, are, or your friends are just whining online about how much they hate Tom Brady. You might post this and just say, oh, you, you mad, bro? Right? It draws attention to the foolishness of our anger, without directly addressing it, right? It's meant to make us pause, to reflect back on our anger, and maybe to see a bit more clearly the foolishness of it, the self-centeredness of it. And in our passage today, I really mean God basically does this exact same thing to Jonah. After doing everything he could to run from Nineveh, now... All of Jonah has, all of Nineveh has just repented. And what we see is that Jonah is not very happy about that at all. He's angry, he's livid. But here, God patiently waits for Jonah to tell him just how angry he is. And why he's so angry. And then rather than addressing his anger directly, God simply with a patient, kind heart asks him what is the subtitle of this series. What I think is the question that makes the entire book click into focus and make perfect sense. The question God has for Jonah, do you do well to be angry? In other words, should you be angry? In other words, you mad, bro? Right? (laughs) I see you're very angry, Jonah. It's hard to miss that. Should you be? Much like this meme, God's question to Jonah at the end of this book is supposed to make him reflect back on his anger. It's supposed to make him finally see the foolishness of it for himself. Now, he never does. At least if he does, it's not mentioned in this book, and that matters. But if we understand this book correctly, we are supposed to read this, and we are supposed to see with crystal clarity, yeah, he should have seen this. He should have got it. So this is the question we need to have in mind today as we explore chapter 4. As we explore chapter 4, we need to be thinking here, why is Jonah's anger so problematic? Why? Right? It's not hard to see he's pretty mad. It's not hard to see he probably shouldn't be. But why? Why? What's wrong with his anger? What is it that Jonah doesn't quite understand that's fueling and prompting his anger? And to try and make sense of this first, in part one, we're just going to examine Jonah's anger. We're just going to look at his anger here to try and make sense of it. And if you had to sum up Jonah's anger in one simple little bite-sized sentence, I think this is a good one. He says, basically, if Nineveh lives, I'd rather die. If Nineveh lives, I'd rather die. Right away, as soon as as they are miraculously saved, they miraculously repent, the very next thing we read is this in verse 1. But it pleased, displeased Jonah exceedingly, not a little bit, exceedingly. And he was angry. Now, I've been trying to prepare us for this <laughs> uh, throughout the entire series by showing you what I think is very clear evidence from within this book itself, even in chapters 2, even in chapter 3. That Jonah never truly repented. He never did. He prayed a prayer, but he never even acknowledged his sin in the prayer. He did obey, and will go to Nineveh, but did he really have a choice? After God had him swallowed in a fish and spit up on the land. But, but in one sense, I do think that this book is written in such a way that many people are meant to read it, and and, and they may not see those details along the way, at least not in the first read-through, but when we get to this point in the book, it is meant to force us to look back at the rest of the book with a little bit of a fine-tooth comb, a little bit more precision and focus to say, wait a second, did he actually repent? And then see what we've seen through This is one of the reasons I'm telling you, I really think that these four chapters in the Old Testament, this is a literary masterpiece. This book is layered with just incredible meaning and power. As soon as we read that Jonah was angry and and, and exceedingly displeased, I think we're meant to wonder, well, wait a minute, why? Why? God just moved mightily through his preaching, right? And it is at this point, when the author has us kind of on our toes, that he finally lets us in on what's been happening in Jonah's mind this entire story, all along. Jonah basically, if you will, says the quiet part out loud here in his anger. He lets us know what he's really been thinking. He prays, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Nineveh. Now, I want to point out again, some of you told me you're wrestling with this interpretation of Jonah. Is he really this self-righteous? Is he really not repentant? If you're wrestling with that, I want to say this is one of the most important details in the entire book. Because ultimately, this is proof that Jonah had not had a change of heart after being rescued by the fish. He has not. And it's very clear because... He is reflecting back on how he felt before being rescued by the fish. And he's specifically saying, I knew I was right back then. I still feel the same way right now. And actually, that's why I'm so mad. This is the reason the book ends this way. And Jonah is not the hero of this book. You see this? He, he's never repented. God spared Nineveh in spite of Jonah. Now, again, I realize that breaks some of our categories, especially if we grew up in a big Bible-believing church, they have a the felt board of Jonah and the whale. That doesn't, that's not how that exercise typically goes. I actually uh, showed my kids a video. I said, hey, look at the books daddy's gonna preach. This is the story of Jonah, and I played a kid's video on YouTube. And I watched it, and we're watching it, and good, and Jonah swallows up, he's spinning on land, he goes, he preaches, and then he repents, and the video ends. And I said, no! How dare you do that? That is not the point. You have missed the point of the whole book. I even want you to notice why he fled to Tarshish to begin with. Next he says, for, here's why. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why I'm angry, he says, right? In other words, all along, we've been wondering why Jonah has been running. That hasn't been entirely clear. It doesn't say outright until now. We've been wondering, but was he afraid to go there? Was he concerned they might kill him, which maybe they would have? Uh, Did he just think this whole thing was foolish? Was he just a really stubborn guy? It could have been anything. But here, for the first time, the author gives us a detailed glimpse into his thought process. And ultimately, it was none of those reasons that he was running from Nineveh. He ran because he knew that God would show mercy and grace to the Ninevites. And he didn't want him to. In in Jonah's mind he knew that salvation belonged to the Lord. Theologically he was right about that. He prayed it very accurately in chapter 2 but he thought he knew better than God who should actually be saved. And this is the problem. When God saved him from death at sea Jonah thought good God good God. That's right. This is how salvation should work. And hey, I'm glad it belongs to you, God. Right? But when that same God showed mercy to Nineveh, Jonah thought, bad God. No, no. Bad God. That's not how salvation should work. That is not how I would do it if salvation belonged to me. But the real telling detail actually here is just how dramatically Jonah responds to this. He is not just pretty mad. He's not just a little upset. This throws him into an existential crisis. He prays, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die if you spare Nineveh than for me to live. In other words, I, I am so sure that I know how to divvy up salvation better than you, God, that if you do it differently than me, if you show mercy and grace to my enemies and you let them go on living, I would rather die. I don't want to be your creature in your creation anymore if this is how you operate. God, I think you are so off base, I don't even want the life that you have given me anymore. And so we can see just how deep and just how dark Jonah's pride and hypocrisy really were. And next, God does something very interesting to try and shine a spotlight on that pride in hypocrisy in hopes that he might see it not by addressing it explicitly, but by asking a simple Question next in part two. God's question again. You mad, bro? Right? <laughs> do you do well to be angry? What you do notice? God asks this right away in, in verse four. He lets Jonah pray this very angry prayer, and then rather than correcting him, he simply asks, "Do you do well, Jonah, to be angry?" In other words, again, I see you're angry. It's hard to miss. And it seems clear to me you should not be angry. But here, let me just ask you this question to see if you can pick up on that. <laughs> let me see if you'll understand it. And the first time God asked this question, notice there's no response from Jonah at all. The story just continues. But then God orchestrates this very strange series of events with a plant. And then he circles back to the very same question. This time just related to the plant. And he's trying to make a point here. He's trying to expose Jonah's anger and hypocrisy. So we're told that Jonah went out to the outskirts of town overlooking Nineveh. And he sort of grumpily sets up this booth. And he um, sits there. It says, quote, till he should see what would become of the city. Now, Each commentator that I read pointed out that more than likely what he's doing here is he is waiting for the allotted 40 days that he preached in in, in his message last week to Nineveh. He's waiting the 40 days to see if God might change his mind and finally actually smite his enemies. He is waiting that 40 days to see if in fact that enemy kingdom is gonna come and conquer these fools that he hates so much. He's waiting to see if God might rain down fire from heaven which certainly he's not going to do and as he sits there God does something very strange with a plant first it's worth noting that God is very much responsible for every detail in this part of the story and the author is showing us that for a very good reason I want you to notice in verse 6 it was God who appointed the plant to grow up it even says he did it to save Jonah from his discomfort he wants to die and God is trying to keep him cozy in a hot day, right? The kindness of our God in pursuing us. Then, but then in verse 7, God appointed a worm and, and attacked the plant so that w- it would wither. And then in verse 8, God is the one who appointed even the scorching east wind and, quote, the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Strange turn of events here. It's a little microcosm of his life story in a way. Um, Now, as an aside, I just want to mention that some of you have pointed out uh, how sarcastic I have been in preaching through the book of Jonah. And I want to say during this series that, yeah, maybe I've gone a little bit overboard. You might be right about that. But I want you to see why that is. I I want you to see that the, the, the content and the tone of this book very much is that way. Throughout this book... God is trying to show Jonah his pride by doing stuff like this over and over again, gobbling him up with a fish, vomiting him up on the shore, planting a tree, making it go. He's trying to do these things in really kind of a passive, aggressive way, really, to show him again. Do you do well to be angry, right? There is an edge to this. There's sarcasm, right? Do you really do well? Is that how you should be feeling right now? Jonah, really? Right? This is, there is, a, there is an, air, there's an edge of sarcasm here. God is orchestrating these events very much on purpose to try and expose his pride in sort of a bit of a passive aggressive way. And this is why after all of this, God does not even specifically rebuke Jonah of his pride and hypocrisy. He just says, oh, okay. At the end here. Do you do well to be angry uh, for the plant? Do you do well? Do you see that? God is trying to get Jonah to reflect on his heart condition because God knows that this is the real problem here. It's his heart, and he just can't see it. Even after he asks him this question at, at the end of the, the plant escapade, Jonah doubles down. He says, yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And we're meant to think back, sit back and see, man, yeah, he really doesn't see this, does he? And finally, after all of this, God shares his reasons. God shares here why he saved Nineveh, and the reason is that he sees great potential in sinful people. He sees great potential in sinful people. God says in verse 10 to Jonah, He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, Jonah, you're more concerned about a plant dying if it means that you have to sit in the sun than an entire city perishing. And again, the the, the implication here is, Jonah, you don't see a problem with that? You don't see a problem with that? You think this plant that I made, by the way, to keep you comfortable is more valuable than this entire city? Uh, And then God basically even grants him that. It's as if God says, okay, so you do. You really care about this plant. That's fine. He says, and should I not pity Nineveh, he says, that great city? In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's the end of the book. Tell me this book is not sarcastic. That's the last line of the book. That's how it ends, with God basically saying, Jonah, what about the cattle, Jonah? Can I save the cattle Do you see any value in the Ninevites' livestock at least? Or do you think they should all die too? And again, that's very purposeful detail because last week we even saw how extreme their repentance was. And part of that was even the cattle put on sackcloth and ash and they participated in the fast of repentance. The author is doing something here. They want us to see that when Jonah looked at Nineveh, he saw nothing but vile, wicked sinners who in his mind were worthless, garbage. And he assumed in his pride the world would be far better without them. God, on the other hand, who actually did labor to create this city and all of its people, did not see it that way. God very much disagreed. When God looked at Nineveh, he did see their wickedness. It's important for us to understand this. Because there's a, a real way to manipulate this as if we just need to ignore all the sins of the world. And that's really the problem is Christians who take sin seriously. That's not the point. We saw very clearly in Jonah 1. The reason God sent Jonah there was to address their wickedness. That's very true. But he didn't just see their wickedness. And this is so important. God himself saw great potential in this city and in the people living there. And this church, this is ultimately the disagreement between Jonah and God in this book. This is why Jonah was so angry. This is why his anger was so problematic. Because like this tree, which he did not plant or water or do anything for, Jonah did not labor to make these Ninevites, and therefore he had no right to preside as judge and jury over their eternal fate. God, on the other hand, did. God did labor to make these Ninevites. And God had every right to judge them or give them grace and mercy to do whatever he pleases with these people he's created. He made the people of Nineveh. He saw potential in them even in spite of their sin. And he had every right to give them mercy if he wanted to. And this is what the author wants us to see today. He wants us to see precisely what Jonah did not see. And that is namely today, church, that God can redeem any life because he is the source of every life. This is what it means, church, that salvation belongs to the Lord. He can redeem any life because he is the source of every life. This is why he can redeem even our enemies Even our worst of foes. And when he does, we should be glad. We should be glad. Because we are not him. We are not the creators or the sustainers of human life. Humans were not made in our image. And they have not rebelled against us in their sin. This is why Jonah's anger was such a problem. Because he thought that God, he thought he knew better than God who deserved to be saved. He knew that salvation belonged to God. He just wished it belonged to him. And in the end, his hypocrisy and his religious pride corrupted him. They corrupted him. And ironically, they left him with a wicked, angry, unrepentant heart. And so next, what I want to do is just consider, how can we avoid Jonah's anger? How can we avoid becoming angry religious people like Jonah? And what I want to do is to share three beliefs that I think in God's sovereignty are meant to guard us against Jonah's anger. In other words, based on what we see here in chapter 4, had Jonah believed these three things, had Jonah actually believed these, I think he would not have been nearly as angry with God in this way. And so the first thing we need to believe is this. Number one, that God values all of the human life he has made. God values all of the human life he's made. Now, in one sense, Jonah did understand this. Uh, he even told God, uh, that's why I ran away, because you value all human life in that way. He specifically knew that God would value Nineveh more than he did. And, and so there is a sense in which he comprehended this. He just wasn't happy about it. He, he disagreed with God's assessment of the situation, if you will. In his mind, he knew better the real value of each person. But clearly, it's hard to miss in this book that God does not categorize people based on their, quote-unquote, value. As if they're different in in value in this way. God values all human life. And he values it equally. As Proverbs 22.2 says, uh, the rich and poor have this in common, the Lord made them both. You see that? Uh, In other words, even your net worth... Which is objectively the, the, the most clear metric of value in this world. How much do you own? How, what have you accomplished? Even your net worth does not determine your value because rich and poor have this in common. The Lord has made them both. It's our image-bearing nature, which all humans share, that gives us this value in this way. Now, I just want to say, that is a uniquely biblical idea. That is a uniquely biblical idea. We take this very much for granted, but most people in the world do not actually believe this. And if they do believe it, frankly, uh, it's because they have been influenced in one way or another by the truth of Scripture, whether they realize it or not. The idea of universal human rights even can be traced back to this theological concept, which is rooted in the truth of Scripture, these ancient inspired texts from God. But the truth is, church, this same thing, the rich and poor have this in common, could be said of every other distinction as well. Uh, Black and white people have this in common. Men and women have this in common. Democrats and Republicans have this in common. Socialists and capitalists have this in common. Heterosexual people and the LGBT community have this in common. Church, the Lord has made them both. We need to hear this today. The Lord has made them both. And for this reason, he values all of them, whether or not we do. He's not interested in our opinions on that judgment. He values them. This means that if you're here today and you think this whole Christianity thing is a hoax, if you just think the God of the Bible is a useless, worthless waste of time, I have great news for you today. He does not feel the same about you. He does not. The whole point of this book is that even in spite of our sin, and even though we have all rebelled against this God, regardless of our religious background or resumes, he still offers us grace. Because he created all human life in his holy divine image as a display of his glory. And for that reason, church, he values every person he has made no matter how far from him they are. In fact, he even delights when those who are far off are brought near by faith and repentance. Nothing brings him greater joy. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, when any sinner repents and comes back home after wandering off and going wayward, he does not condemn us when he sees us walking back. He welcomes us. Why? It's because he values our life even in spite of our rebellion. He sees our potential to reflect his glory and he longs to redeem that image in us. But as Christians, if we lose sight of this and like Jonah, we start to disagree with God's assessment of the situation, if we think he shouldn't show so much mercy as that, especially not to those people, right? Listen, that will corrupt our hearts and fill us, church, with hatred. It will make us foolishly angry, We think with the world, maybe, but really with God, because he seems to have far more grace for this world than we do, and he does, but the point is, we should be so happy about that. We should be so happy about that. But all the while, if we are sort of swayed into Jonah's anger, we will think we do well to be happy we will think we do well. And no matter how much the Lord patiently pursues us and tries to discipline us, we'll just keep scoffing at this world that he longs to redeem. It is not hard to see this kind of Christian anger all over the internet. It's not hard. It is not hard to see this kind of Christian anger, certainly throughout the history of the church either, professing Christians with no empathy for this world Elevating themselves above others as if they are more valuable and spiritually superior. In some cases, even turning a blind eye to gross injustices like murder and genocide and racism and prejudice of all kinds. Church, we are capable of these things. It would be naive of us to assume that we're not. We are capable of these things. Churches, Christian churches, gospel preaching churches like ours have fallen prey to these very things as they open the scriptures every week and as they proclaim the grace of the God from their pulpits, all because in our pride and hypocrisy, we resist, we resist this simple truth that God values all of the human life he has made. This simple doctrinal fact has colossal implications for our worldviews, colossal. This is why we need to devote ourselves to preaching the gospel and making disciples and multiplying churches in all of the world, even the darkest corners of the world. This is why we need to pray fervently and and, and work to see that God would make us a more ethnically diverse church. This is why we need to actually know and love our neighbors. This is why we need to care for vulnerable children who offer us nothing in return. This is why we need to oppose abortion no matter how unpopular that becomes and this is why we cannot just ignore the lgbt community and 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 turn up our nose at them because god values all human life and if we really know him if we really fear him then we will too we will too church no matter how hard it gets we will too Next, we also need to remember that we deserve death, just like everyone else. This is so important. Jonah missed this. God brought him to the brink of death a couple times in this book, but he missed it. (laughs) Did you notice Jonah's the only Hebrew in this book? Every other person is a pagan. And did you notice that every other person, all the sailors, the king, the entire city, even the calves, (laughs) knew they deserved to die? Both the sailors and the Ninevites even cried out to God, right, maybe he will spare us. Maybe, right? They expected that if they got what they deserved, they would die. They would die. They just hoped that this God would grant them mercy. Meanwhile, even after God went to great lengths a couple times here to save Jonah's life, as soon as he spared the Ninevites, Jonah didn't even want to live anymore. He so did not realize that he deserved to die that when God saved his enemy, he actually wanted to die. The pagans knew they deserved death. They humbly appealed to God, and God relented. He had them to keep living. Jonah does not understand he deserves death. He arrogantly argues with God as if he knows better, and by the end, he is so sure he knows better that he just wants to die. This is so important. (laughs) This is so important, church. If we don't realize that we deserve death because of our sin, we will never really appreciate the life-giving grace that God has given us. He could save us from a million seas with a million fish, and we will never get it. And in turn, as a result, we will not be able to empathize with those who are far from God because we will assume very much wrongly that we are nothing like them, when the truth is we absolutely are. We absolutely are. The number one reason we should have compassion for even the most vile sinners in this world is because we were vile sinners when God saved us. By his grace, nothing will make us more humble. Nothing will guard us against Jonah's anger, quite like believing that the God who gave us eternal life actually had every right to send us to hell. Nothing will humble us and soften our hearts quite like that. Now, it's a hard pill to swallow, uh, that, that we deserve death. And yet, when we receive it by faith and repentance... It brings such a spiritual sweetness even into our lives because we realize that we are on a level playing field with even the worst sinners in this world. And when we realize that, it keeps us from this foolish mistake of thinking that the justice of God depends on our condemnation of everyone else's sin. Church, it doesn't. The justice of God does not depend on our condemnation of everyone's sin in this world. As we read in Romans 12, 19, it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In other words, don't sit on the hill waiting. Just let God do it in his timing for his reasons. For it is written, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, do we need to be clear about sin? Absolutely. Uh, Do we need to have the courage to tell people the truth about sin, even when it's incredibly hard to do that, a hard pill to swallow? Yes, we do. Do we need to insist that Christians actually do repent and have newness of life to affirm that they are children of God? Absolutely, yes, we do. But we do not need to set every record straight in this world. God will do that. We do not need to condemn every single sin in this world. God will do that. We do not need to correct every false doctrine and teaching even in this world. Church, God will do that. Not to mention, if we get ahead of ourselves here, we're going to find out very fast. We can't exhaust the justice of this righteous God because we are not righteous and we are not just. What we need to do, church, is to remember the depths of sin that God has rescued us from. We need to remember the life that God has given us, even while we were chasing after death. And we need to humbly, with repentant hearts, tell this world of the riches of His grace and His kindness. We need to tell this world that that, that God valued our life even when we deserved death. He valued it so much even that he gave his life to ransom and to redeem ours. But we will never appreciate his death for us in this way if we don't realize that we deserved to be the ones to die. We will never realize it. And finally, church, if we want to avoid Jonah's anger, the last thing we need to remember is this. That God has mercy for sinners who repent. God has mercy for sinners who repent. To start this series, uh, I preached an overview sermon where we looked at the message of this entire book, which I said, and I, I still think is, that God is surprisingly merciful And we can be incredibly hypocritical. That's what we're meant to see as we look at this book. It's hard to miss Jonah's hypocrisy in this book. If we read it correctly, I think we're meant to see ourselves in Jonah more so than we see anyone else in Jonah. And if we started reading this book convinced that we are strong Christians who have a leg up on this world because of our religious competency and our spiritual superiority, if that's how we started reading the book, Well, then by the end of this book, we may be tempted to despair. (laughs) We may be tempted to despair because God and all the pagans are doing just fine by the end of this book. The sailors from chapter 1 probably went on that day to complete a calm voyage home after nearly dying at sea with certainly a new profound affection for the God of Israel. All of Nineveh has been spared, even the king. So the cows can go back to their grazing, and the people can go back to their work and their lives, again, with a newfound appreciation for this God of Israel who has spared them even in spite of their sin, because all of those people repented. They owned their sin before God. They appealed to him for his mercy, and they turned from it. And, of course, God is still reigning from heaven, (laughs) orchestrating the events of earth toward his good and righteous ultimate purpose of redemption. Everyone in this book is doing fine by the end of the book, except for Jonah. Jonah is infuriated. He is uncomfortable. He is exhausted. And he is at odds with his Maker. And maybe this is how you feel right now. Maybe you are struggling to make sense of the sin of our world. And feeling displaced. And very uncomfortable. And even if you're honest, angry with God. Maybe you are questioning why God has you here. And whether or not he should show mercy and grace to this world that is so lost And hopeless. And like Jonah, yes, it it is important for you to recognize your sin. We've covered that. Uh, But it is equally important, church, for you to recognize this. That God has mercy for sinners who repent. If this is where we find ourselves embittered and angry with God, I, I want to ask us today... As we look out at this dark and lost world in our anger, in our rebellion and pride, I want to ask us the same question God asked Jonah. Listen, do we do well to be angry? Do we do well? Could it be that our anger is not righteous anger? Could it be that we are pouting, sunburnt, on a hill outside of Nineveh, mad at God because we still think we know better? If so, then church, I want to say this, don't let this book bring you to despair. Don't. We don't know if if Jonah ever got this. Uh, We don't know if he's ever repented, but it should not be hard for us to see he should have. (laughs) He should have. And so let the ending of this book bring you where I think the ending of this book is meant to bring you. Let this book bring you to repentance. Repentance. As twisted up, as proud, and as angry as we may be, church, praise this merciful God, we can always repent. Repent. As your pastor, before I lead us, before I lead this church in proclaiming God's word to this world, I want to say, I want you to hold me accountable. To first lead us in repentance. I am a proud religious man. I want you to know that. I am a self-righteous hypocrite like Jonah. It's very important that you know that. But together I want to say this, church. Let's lay down our spiritual pride. Let's admit our hypocrisy. Uh, Let's turn from our anger, church, and let's receive the grace and mercy that God has sent us to share with this world. Who knows? He may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Church, we can know, in fact, that he will. We can know that he will because of this book. We can know that he will because the God who gave us life has come down from heaven himself to die in our place and to graciously give us his life. What should we do? What should we do in response to that? There is only one response, church, is to repent. And to believe in the gospel.